ke na koe teacher. Hey there. So, uh, who has been to at least one of the uh, formations so far over the last month or two? At least one of them. Pretty much all of you, I think. Uh, nearly. So, um, you'll be aware that we are in the middle of a series called What on Earth Did Jesus Die For? And it's really framed around, as you'll be familiar with, for those of you who have been coming a few times, uh, framed around this idea that maybe some of the conceptions we've had about, in the Christian tradition, about what kind of meaning is held in the Jesus story, and in particular the story of the death and resurrection, which sits right at the heart of Christian faith and yet is sometimes obscured by our ideas about it, um, that some of these ideas have been um, unhealthy for us. Some of the ideas we've actually held about this story have been profoundly um, anxiety-inducing, even if not always on the surface, sometimes underneath the surface, uh, in terms of the way in which we see God, uh, what we understand about ultimate reality, about what's really going on here. Um, and, and so what we're trying to do is come at the story from a number of different angles to uh, think about some other ways of accessing the meaning that's held within this event. Because what I don't want to do and I don't think is, um, I don't want to do and I don't think I need to do is to say, well, because it's sometimes been a bit unsettling, I want to throw the whole idea out. Uh, instead, maybe it's to ask some better questions of the story. Um, and so what we've been trying to do is tackle it and say, what if this is not a story that is about um, God needing human sacrifice, um, especially a really innocent human sacrifice to feel better about us and forgive us? What if that's not the story? What if there's something else going on here that might be uh, good news? Uh, so that's what we've been doing and... This is where we're up to. So a little while ago now, we looked at some of the, a couple in particular of the big metaphors that, that often have been used and, and wrestled with in the Christian tradition around understanding the death of Jesus and its meaning um, and what some of the challenges with that might be in the way that they've been used. And then we looked at the idea that the death and resurrection of Jesus is something we enter into. It's archetypal of our reality of human experience of this idea of death and resurrection that we participate in. And that even in a broader sense, there's a naming of something about fundamental reality, about this um, death and new life that uh, is in and through the way everything functions and that the death and resurrection of Jesus um, embodies that and invites us into that um, to participate in. And then last time we, we really got freaky uh, with a bit of Nietzsche uh, we looked at this idea that of, of what, what it means to say that somehow God dies, um, that certain ideas of God are crucified on the cross with Jesus, and we're gonna, we'll touch a little bit more on some of those tonight, I think. Um, but also that God experiences 
suffering and death and darkness in, uh, in the story of Jesus. And so in some way, uh, we meet God in that space even of, of God feeling far away or God forsakenness. Uh, what I want to do tonight uh, is, this is a very inspiring title, The Execution of a Nonviolent Revolutionary. Um, is I want to just tackle the story again and in some ways just look at it as it is certainly presented in the Gospels. What is the story of Jesus as it unfolds and what happens to Jesus and kind of why does it happen? And, and rather than perhaps asking massive mystical philosophical questions about why Jesus was killed, actually just think about the story and it becomes pretty obvious why Jesus was killed on one level uh, and that's that he was executed by the state. Um, because he was causing trouble. So uh, that's at least one reading of the story. It's, as we come at this story from different angles, hopefully we see different things in it each time that we can keep coming back around to. All right? You going okay out there? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Don't be shy. <laughs> um, so I want to start with... The idea that um, the Old Testament in particular, if we go back into the Old Testament, I don't know how much time you spend in, well, in the Bible, to be fair. Um, and I don't mean that about you. I just mean Christians in general. We like it. We like to sort of have it on the shelf there. but Might dip into it from time to time. Um, and then the Old Testament, well, that's a whole other, there's so much going on in there. And how do you even... How do you even tackle it? But I want to just touch on a couple of things that are happening in the Old Testament. Uh, when I grew up, I read the Old Testament, I think, in a very um, flat kind of way, which is to say I felt like I could just dip into it at any point and everybody or everybody who was in the story and who was writing the story and telling the story all had exactly the same idea about what was going on, kind of because I felt like God wrote the Bible, um, if you know what I mean. Uh, now, we have a, we have a, in the Christian tradition, we talk about God somehow inspiring the text and stuff like that. But for me, as a kid growing up in the church, that was like God, you know, maybe there were some people involved putting the, the, the what would they have used? Something to papyrus, I suppose, however they did it back then. Um, but really that they were just sort of there and their hands were moving across the page, but it was the Lord was just downloading it through their bodies. You know, that was, that was kind of the, the sense of how to read the Bible I had. So I could dip into it any, any time and basically it was God directly speaking to me uh, rather than entering into this ongoing pilgrimage of a people as they grapple with their understanding of God, you know. Um, and so one of the things I missed a lot when I read it that way as a, as a younger person, and not just as a kid, but growing up into my adulthood, um, was that oftentimes the Old Testament is, and this is a very Jewish thing, is an argument about God. It's, um, now as modern Christians, that sounds almost, you're like, oh, how can that be? This is the, this is the Bible, of course, uh, which has come down to us from heaven. Um, but a very Jewish way to think about this kind of text is to say this is something we, we grapple with, we wrestle with. And there's an ongoing debate that's happening, even within the Old Testament text itself. Uh, and so you have these kind of, hopefully that's what makes sense as to where we go as, as we go along, how this lands with Jesus. But you see these different tensions throughout the story. For example, at times there's this real strong emphasis on purity. 
So if you go and read some of the laws, they are, they are like hyper intense about certain aspects of purity, right? And what might become unclean and what might make us clean. And uh, these related to all sorts of um, physical uh, aspects of our lives. Uh, and then also behaviours that we participate in, um, certain actions that we can do to make us pure. And, and purity is a very binary concept in the sense that something's either pure or impure, right? So if you've got a bowl of soup and you find a hair in it, um, you don't, once you pull the hair out, you're like, well, some of you might be. Most of us, once we pull the hair out, we're like, well, I got the hair out, yeah, back in there. Uh, now the soup is ruined, right? Because it's been... It's been contaminated by something. Um, you know, if you were to just take your... We could, we could push that metaphor, couldn't we? We could keep pushing that metaphor. Just a nice big pot of chilli, something like that, and then just a little drop of... I don't know. We could make it relatively sanitary and just say maybe maybe I was just... Well, I got very hot cooking it, and so then I just I gathered some sweat, just purposefully, maybe into a tissue, and then I just squeezed it into the chilli there. And then I served it up to you. Um, <laughs> purity is very is very binary language. Uh, how much poison is it? Um, how much poison is it acceptable to have in a children's playground? Uh, that's kind of a binary thing, right? You're dealing with issues of purity. You're like none, please. I would like none. Um, and so <laughs> this way of looking at the world sometimes was very important to particular people in the Hebrew story. We've got to keep ourselves pure so that God will be happy with us. And then that uh, affected the way that we saw other people because they could make us impure. And so there were a lot of exclusionary practices that were connected to ideas around purity. Uh, and then other people at times in the Old Testament stand up and say, hey, um, maybe you shouldn't be worrying so much about that. Maybe you should be looking at welcoming the foreigner and the alien. and Maybe you should be looking at looking after some people who need some looking after. Uh, and so at times the prophet, some prophets would rise up and say, hey, enough of this. Let's, uh, let's actually care for some people and, and, and toss your concern with purity aside for a moment, would you, and actually get stuck in and help people. And sometimes the prophets um, are sort of, well, they disagree about this, to be frank. <laughs> uh, one prophet will say, don't even get along, don't even... You know, don't even accept the foreigner in your midst because it's going to ruin you. You're going to be corrupted. And then another prophet rises up and says, hey, no, you must welcome them in. Uh, and so there's this ongoing discussion. It's a very Jewish thing to do, but I think as kind of very linear Christians in the modern world, we want it just to all follow this like nice, neat and tidy line, you know. Um, we also have these, these tensions around violence and revenge versus forgiveness and loving kindness, you know. And so you have... Um, you have this image of, is God violent? And at times they decide, yes, God is violent. And he is commanding us to go forth and be violent. Uh, let us go in and wipe out the men, women and children. Uh, right? And then uh, at other times, uh, some people seem to say, I, don't, I think God is uh, best described in the terms of abounding and loving kindness. Uh, who forgives from generation to generation. Um, you actually see, uh, I think it's Nahum and Jonah, for example, if you read these two prophetic books, 
um, they're both about um, Assyrians. And one is about how uh, God's judgment and wrath is upon them and they will be punished and are the worst people imaginable and uh, we all want them to die. That's Nahum. And Jonah wants to be like that. But uh, he has the sneaking suspicion, if you read the book of Jonah, that God's not actually like that. And so God says, go and, go and talk to the Assyrians in Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I don't want to, because if I go, then you'll forgive them, because that's what you like. I've, I know about you. Uh, and so he tries to not go, because he doesn't want them to be forgiven. He wants to agree with Nahum and say, a curse upon you and your houses. Um, and he turns up eventually in Nineveh and gives the worst prophecy ever, um, which is he doesn't even say he doesn't even say repent and God will forgive you or turn from you. He just says you're going to be destroyed. <laughs> that's a, that's his prophecy. Worst prophecy in the Bible in terms of if you're trying to bring a real you know encouraging word, maybe a maybe a, a correcting word. He doesn't even try and make it correcting. Doesn't offer them anything. Just says you're all going down. Uh, he's trying to be like Nahum. But he, he, and he's trying his hardest because he knows that actually God's not really like that. And, uh, and he, do, he only does it on the outskirts of the city. He hasn't gone to the king's courts. He goes to the outskirts of the city and he's like, you're all going to die. Uh, God's going to wipe you out or something like that. You know, he's, he's trying to be as angry as possible. And uh, they all repent, even the animals. And uh, they all... <laughs> They all dress up in sackcloth and ashes. I, suppose, I mean, it's a comedy. It's a, it's, it's a comedy of a story. It's supposed to be. And, um, and Jonah, the prophet of God, is left out in the wilderness, miserable and unhappy. And, um, and the Assyrians have all been forgiven and, and welcomed by God. So you actually have different ideas about God going on in the text, right? Um, which I think is beautiful. But it's, it's perhaps not what we're used to when we think about reading Scripture. Uh, and so and connected to this, uh, is, a, is a view of God sometimes as a tribal warrior deity, you know, a God who's the God of our tribe. And, and basically what life is about is figuring out whose God is bigger and stronger. And so we're going to meet you on the battlefield. And my God is so big, so strong and, my, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. It's true. That's right. And so we're going to meet on the battlefield and my God's bigger than your God. And so we're going to wipe you out. Um, but then if you wipe us out, that means we've got two choices. One is our God wasn't so great. Uh, and so maybe we should start worshipping your God, which they do sometimes. Or uh, maybe God wasn't happy enough with us. And that's why we didn't win. Uh, and so uh, there's that kind of idea of God going through the text. And yet at the same time, there's also this much bigger, broader, more beautiful language that's sitting underneath and emerging and poking its head through at times. Even their language, Linda was talking this morning about the idea of spirit and ruach, which was, is this Hebrew word for breath and for life, and this idea that God is actually the source of life that is in all things, uh, is a much bigger, broader, deeper, more universal idea than a tribal deity uh, who's, who's trying to pump you up so you can go out and smite yourself some Philistines. So um, there's a discussion going on about what God is like. Yeah? You with me at this point? All right. Good. So what Christianity suggests in some way is that when Jesus uh, enters the story, um, Jesus uniquely shows us something about what God is really like. 
So they use language about Jesus that somehow he is imaging to us uh, a representation of, of who God is. And Jesus lands on certain sides in these discussions. Uh, and so when it comes to purity versus inclusion, Jesus keeps getting in trouble for including people instead of worrying about his cleanliness. Uh, and the people he seems to have, uh, a lot of the time, the people he really challenges are the people who are managing the purity system, the exclusionary system, and, um, and reaching beyond them those, those, bound, those strict boundaries in all sorts of ways, and, uh, and that's a bit upsetting. He chooses, uh, he chooses to love. He chooses to reach across some of those barriers, right? Uh, whether it's to women or to, um, which in the first century is a very unusual thing to do. And not just a woman, sinful woman. You know? <laughs> um, great categories they have in the first century to do, like define it. There's the sinners, there's the sinful woman. Uh, you know, so he, he reaches to the, to the people who are sick, to the kids, to all of the people whom the society is kind of pushed to the edges and, and he reaches across. So when it comes to purity versus inclusion, Jesus consistently lands on the side of inclusion rather than on trying to manage some kind of ritualistic cleanliness. Um, cool? All right. So uh, then we have um, the fact that I, that I think what else is going on here is that Jesus confronts this idea or, and I don't just mean confronts as in he just goes around talking about it all the time, but in the way in which he actually lives out his vocation, um, he, he um, opposes the idea of what we might call redemptive violence. Um, redemptive violence is the idea that violence will fix the problem, uh, which is a very common idea in human experience and human history. We've got a situation, and look, what's going to solve this situation and make it okay is if we just do a bit of violence, just a bit of violence, and then that'll, that'll, like, that'll resolve that. So what we just need to do is we just need to go into that region. Uh, maybe we just need to topple that dictator. Maybe we just need to um, give those guys some guns to fight those guys. Just a little bit of violence. And that'll solve the problem we've got there. And as we always know, that uh, strategy never uh, fails, uh, never makes things worse, uh, never perpetuates a spiralling life of violence. But obviously it does, right? Um, and, and Jesus also suggests to us, I think, that God is not a God who endorses the power of empire and violence in that kind of way. So this is particularly important perhaps because Jesus lives in a world in which power and violence are so closely aligned to notions of God and divinity. So think for a moment about the Roman Empire, first century, a little bit of back to our history. Some of this will be familiar to, some, to many of you by now. But if we think about the Roman Empire, uh, they have this, you know, they have the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, um, which brought tremendous stability to the region for a period of time. Uh, and they had very effective strategies for managing the Pax Romana. One was, uh, can anyone guess what one of their strategies for uh, maintaining, what's that? Crucify the rebels, that's right. Very effective for stability. Uh, and the peace of Rome, right? 
Uh, and you had a Caesar who, who these was, you know, the, the title of Caesar. And again, some of the, you'll be familiar with this now. Lord and Saviour. So Augustus is the first one. Who, Augustus kind of sorts out the Anthony, Cleopatra, Julius, Caesar story. If you ever, did anyone ever do that? Classics situation? Or watch a Netflix version of it or something? Um, uh, <laughs> I think he's Octavia at the time and then he, he becomes Caesar of the empire once he's figured out that little altercation. And he becomes Augustus. And Augustus now, because he has brought peace to the empire, is now Lord and Saviour and uh, Son of God. So these are titles used for the, for, the, for the Lord of the empire, to whom this kind of divine or semi-divine status was attached to this figure. Uh, here's a quote about Augustus when he's uh, once he, and this is before Jesus comes along. Providence, by producing Augustus, has sent us and our descendants a saviour who has put an end to war and established all things. So um, this is the gospel of Rome. And that's the word they would use, the gospel of Rome. Right? So uh, you've got a gospel, you've got a Lord and Saviour, you've got a Son of God. Sound familiar? You've got good news, the Pax Romana. So there's that story going on. And... Um, it's possible, it suggests, that maybe Jesus not endorsing that system uh, when those titles start to get used about him. Yeah? Yeah, all right. Okay. Uh, you also have at the same time Jewish hope uh, because they've been oppressed now for many hundreds of years. So they would like things to change. So they are not the ones with the power like the Roman Empire. They are the ones who are under the empire's boot. Um, and they are waiting for their Messiah as a liberator, Messiah or Christ, to come, be sent by God who will come and liberate them all, and that will be fantastic because we'll get to uh, kill us some Romans. Get them out of our country. Um, obviously, this issue got resolved. The issue in Israel, no more conflict there. About Yes, right? I mean, this is the same conversation kind of going on, isn't it? Um, if we could just get Israel back, then everything would be okay. And so what we need is just a bit of violence, just a little bit of violence. Uh, maybe some, uh, some killing would be good. Um, and we could, I mean, they're bad people, so it's okay. Right? I mean, if they're bad people, it's all right. Because, <laughs> oh man, I've really got to work on my sarcasm. Uh, <laughs> Or perhaps I don't have to work on it. I have to, yeah. uh, but that's, that's the idea. We've got a problem and the solution to it is just a bit of an uprising. Get our nation back. Establish David's throne again and then uh, everything will be great. We'll be the rulers of the world. And then everyone will be like, oh, your God is awesome. We all want to serve that God. And then everything will be fixed. Right. Cool. So there's kind of there's two images, aren't there? Two two big stories going on into which Jesus arrives. There's a big story of Rome, which is the big story in that region, and then there's a for the Jewish people who are really a small story in that big empire. There's a, um there's their big story, which is 
we're going to fight our way out of this and it's going to be awesome eventually when the right guy comes along. So Jesus then doesn't bend to either of these visions. He doesn't endorse the Roman system. So he doesn't turn up and say, yep, sorry, Jews, Romans have got it right. Um, The claim that Jesus is Lord and Saviour is a clear sign that the early Christians saw Jesus as being a direct confrontation to the empire of Rome. Um, I mean, think about Herod. What's Herod's response to a, a king being born? Kill him, right? Kill all, kill all the... Because Herod saw the threat. Hang on here. If, if a king rises up, this is a, this is a problem for us. So Jesus is not endorsing the whole Roman thing, but what he also doesn't do is bend into the Jewish response, or at least this particular Jewish response either. Um, And I think what happens in the story of Jesus is that he actually exposes both of these stories for being really ultimately the same kind of thing. Now, obviously, their lived experience in that moment was quite different. The Romans had the power and the Jewish people didn't. But what the Jewish people wanted to do was just simply flip that around so that they had the power and the Roman people didn't. They're killing us. Won't it be great once we can start killing them? Then, because God's obviously on our side. That's the good thing about this, God. Uh, he's, always on, he's always on our side and not theirs. That's what makes it easier to get them. Um, so Jesus doesn't buy into the Roman system, but he also doesn't buy into this Jewish system either. He says... Uh, Things like uh, perfection is to love your enemies. Nobody wants to hear that. Neither side, neither side is interested in that one. Certainly the Romans haven't built the Roman Empire on the basis of loving their enemies. And, uh, and, an oppressed, and this is like perhaps the, the bigger challenged end of it is that these oppressed Jewish people were also being confronted with this idea that violent you're not going to be able to fight your way out of, you can't kill your way out of this situation and so the the kingdom he offers is one in which we love our enemies and one in which we turn the other cheek i mentioned this before but inclusion and embrace over purity um, we even have this notion of divine forgiveness that's freely offered so we've mentioned this before but jesus forgives people um, not just on his own behalf, he, he, he decides that he has the divine rights to just tell them that God had forgiven them as well, which really upset religious systems because one really great way of controlling people is to manage their forgiveness for them. Um, you can control people's access to forgiveness, then you can control people. Yeah? But Jesus walks around, he doesn't follow any of the, the system, he's not going through the temple, he's, he's, he's not doing the things he's supposed to do. He goes around offering divine forgiveness. God forgives you. Uh, and so there's this disruption, this revolution that's taking place in the story of Jesus, but it's not the kind of revolution uh, that necessarily the Jewish people were expecting. It's, it's this revolution that imagines a different way of being in the world that confronts all of those systems that try and use power and control and violence and manipulation. And whether they control politically or through military might or through religious manipulation, uh, Jesus says there's a different way to be in the world and this is where we find God. Uh, not in those ways of trying to control 
You with me? Yeah, all right. Good, good to see you're still here. Um, so really the result of this is quite inevitable in some respects, I think. The way the story goes. If you read the Gospels, the way the story goes, it's not too far into the story. Firstly, you've got Herod right from the beginning who sees that this is going to be a problem. And if you're trying to manage an empire, the last thing you want is new kings rising up, gathering followings of thousands of unhappy people, uh, racing around after them everywhere they go, saying, he's our king, he's our king. That's not great for business. And then um, quite early on in Jesus' story, you can see the Jewish religious leaders start trying to plot a way to kill him as well, right? Now, sometimes we feel like maybe that's a bit of an extreme response because it's quite early on. Maybe he just does something that seems a bit innocuous to us, like he heals someone on the wrong day or he, I don't know, he does something that we'll be like, oh, that doesn't seem too bad. And, uh, and then they go out and they decide we've got to kill this guy because he's threatening, <laughs> he's threatening the whole system. Just a little bit of violence will solve this problem. It'll be fantastic because uh, Jesus will go away and things will go back to the good old way we know they're going to work. Um, so Herod sees the problem early. The Jewish leaders see the problem. Ultimately, the Romans see the problem. And who's the problem? <laughs> Jesus. This feels like hunt for the wilder people. Jesus. And who's through the second door? Jesus. <laughs> no, not Jesus. <laughs> uh, um, love that film. Okay, so, so um, the problem is Jesus. He's causing the problem for everybody. It's this, it's this revolution, but it's, it's not the kind of revolution we want because it's, it's all peaceful. No one wants one of those. It's not, it doesn't give us a chance to rise up and take back our land from the oppressors. It actually invites us into a whole different way of being in the world. Uh, eventually, the religious powers don't want him the political powers don't want him. He's trouble for everyone. And so he's executed. So he's taken to the cross. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at those words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, we had a discussion around that. Um, perhaps this week we can think of uh, the gospel that records his words on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So even at this point, when you would expect Jesus to be at his most um, fed up, at least with the people. He, he, he doesn't bend into their way of being even then. He doesn't, on the cross, he doesn't say, well then, bring down the fire uh, and burn them all. Uh, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're caught up in this way of being in the world and they can't see it. And they think this is going to fix their problem, killing me. Um, ironically, maybe it will, but not in the way they expect. Um, I mean, think about the context in which Jesus is executed. So he's an enemy of the state, right? He's a, he's a political enemy of the state who's executed um, next to two criminals on the cross. Now, again, growing up, I always imagined they were like just thieves. Or, you know, they were just guys who... I don't know, they were probably bad guys with doing bad things. I don't know what they were doing, what were bad people to be doing in the first century. I, I had all sorts of things I could come up with, mostly just things that my parents had told me a good Christian shouldn't do. They'd probably been out drinking or something, um, gotten tattoos. That's probably what they'd done. But no, 
It's old 80s Christian jokes for you. So some of you won't get those references. Um, steps, steps on the side of their hair. Man, early 90s. Does anyone remember steps? Yeah, I had steps inside of my hair. lady in the church came and said to me, quoted Leviticus to me, and said, thou shalt not shave the side of your head and you bring a curse down upon yourself. Anyway, so that's why I'm in therapy. So... <laughs> Um, anyway, the two guys being executed next to Jesus and the words being used to describe them in the original Gospels, these are also, these are revolutionaries. These are people trying to bring down the Roman Empire. These are Jewish enemies of the state getting crucified here on the cross next to Jesus. Um, Barabbas, the one who the crowds decide they, they want Barabbas instead of Jesus, if you're familiar with the story, Pilate brings out Jesus and Barabbas and says, who do you want? And they all say, Barabbas, Barabbas. Well, Barabbas is another one. He's, a, he's, a, he's, an, um, he's one of their revolutionaries trying to fight for the Jewish system. Right? So um, that's the kind of Messiah they want. Give us Barabbas. And that's still, that's still kind of the human response, isn't it? Give us Barabbas. Not this way of love and Turn the other cheek. Give us Barabbas. All right. I'm getting a bit carried away. Sorry. Um, oh, yes. Disruption of status systems. Talked a bit about that. Oh, I've said that too. Father could forgive them. And then we have this. I mean, that's all well and good. But obviously, the powers and violence and the empires win in the end because they snuff his life out and he's crucified. And so... The idea of resurrection in the New Testament stands as this symbol that, in fact, Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' way of being is the one that prevails. Jesus' way of being, Jesus' different imagination, Jesus' uh, opening up of a different kind of kingdom is ultimately the one that's more powerful than death itself. And so... Uh, resurrection is this vindication of the way of Jesus and affirmation that yes, in fact, uh, this one you've killed as being the problem is exactly where we find the presence of who God is. This is what we mean when we say God. Um, all right? Uh, Revelation puts it this way, follow the lamb or follow the beast. The lamb that was slain. That's one of the big images in Revelation. If you're here last Sunday morning, you would have heard me talk a little bit about this. But the book of Revelation, for all its obscure imagery, uh, has two big images in it. One is the lamb that was slain, which is Jesus. It's the way of um, nonviolence, the way of giving up life uh, to refuse to bend into power and, and control and violence. And then you have the beast, which represents the empire of Rome, and all ways of being that are antichrist, and it's big and powerful and ugly, um, and it comes out of the sea, uh, which is chaos. And uh, what we find in the Book of Revelation, what what the prophet says as he writes to these Christians who are being persecuted and killed. In fact, now as they follow Christ in the first century, uh, stay faithful to the way of the Lamb, because that's the way that prevails in the end. That's where God is found, and that's what ultimate reality is really about. Yes. 
This is at least a part of what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel of Jesus. You with me? So perhaps here's a question for us to um, think about before we have a little pause um, and then we're going to have a bit more discussion in the second half because I've given you a good rant. Um, And I think maybe sometimes we just lose sight of this fact that right at the centre of our religion, and I mentioned this maybe right back in the first week of this, is that Christianity is very unusual in that it has an execution device as its most sacred symbol, right? <laughs> uh, it, we put it up on the wall. Lovely execution device. Um, I mean, that's a nice golden shiny one. But that's what it's symbolising, yeah? What a weird thing to do. Put a symbol of state execution um, on the wall of our, of our religious gathering points and above the highest point on our buildings and the old churches. What a strange and unusual thing to do. And we get so used to that image that it becomes really um, saccharine to us, I think. But what, are, what it should remind us of, perhaps, is that when we say we follow Jesus as Christian community, we're following a man who was executed as an enemy of the state. Now, a particular state, not New Zealand government, wasn't nine years of John Key that brought him down. Uh, it's, it's, it's an empire in the first century, but it's, it's the way of violence and, and, and power in the world that, um, that is the one that has, that's the way of being that has the biggest problem with Jesus in the first century, whether it's religious control or, or whatever else. Um, and that's a question that I find interesting to reflect on. What does that mean for me to think about the fact that my faith is centred around someone who was seen that way by all of the powers and authorities in his day? Yeah? Um, So that's like a really lovely question to go to a cup of tea with. And then what we're going to do in the second half is uh, we're going to have a bit more of discussion. Um, Greg's going to come up and join me. chance for us to have a bit of back and forth and, and see where that goes. Is that cool? Because I want to bring this down to what does this actually mean f- f- for us? It's all very nice, well and good talking about these big lofty ideas. But do, what does it mean for, for our real lived lives? Let's, let's think about that. So if you've got any questions that emerge for you as we've been talking or things that you pop up and you're like, oh, yeah, hang on, uh, then think about those over a cup of tea. And then bring them back and we'll have a discussion. Cool? All right. So I've got, I've invited Greg up to, uh, to help with this half. So we're going to have a bit of a conversation. He might have, I'd said, oh, I can, say, I, can, I can bring you up and ask you some questions. And he was like, what if I asked you some questions? Uh, so we'll see what happens there. Um, but also, uh, so Greg, I might let Greg start, and then we'll just see where we go and maybe if uh, if some questions are coming up for you. Esther is going to have it. There she is. She's got a roving microphone, so I don't have to run around. I tell you what, we're just going from level to level, professionalism through the roof. Um, so um, when we get to that point, then uh, chuck your hand up and then Esther can bring a microphone to you. Uh, but Greg, 
I'll flick your way and then we'll see where that goes. All right. So I have a couple of um, questions that came up when Michael was speaking. Um, one of them is around how we, how we understand the ramifications of Jesus' whole present around pacifism or turning the other cheek, uh, as Michael put it, uh, inclusion and divine forgiveness, which I'm still learning how to do. So I have a question around that and also a question around is there another reason why Jesus died on the cross other than a political um, result of his um, resisting the empire? So maybe I'll start with the first one. So I wrote this down. Um, when he was speaking, I kept thinking, so how, how do we do resistance? when it comes to understanding what it means to live in a protectorate or live in a world where we are all subtly protected by the state, there are laws, there are international rules, um, how, do we, how are we to respond around things like just war theory or um, protecting those that we love or... Being a door, having a doormat mentality where we just go, well, you know, turn the other cheek and they kill me. And I, because Jesus rose from the dead, I may not. Uh, so yeah. give me a reason to want to allow myself to go through the same pain and trauma and not stand up and fight or resist the empire um so just just would you elaborate a little on that because i understand how just war theory you know uh runs the world and and it's fueled by people like the nra and um and large countries that are bigger than ours is that a, is that a fair question yeah uh oh lots going on there um I suppose you could say, so uh, just war theory. Does anyone know what we mean when we say just war theory? No. <laughs> Can't buy. Can't buy. Uh, I guess just war theory is, is a progression from indiscriminate war theory, I suppose, which would be like uh, ancient society, which is essentially we just, you, you kill when you need to, when you want something or when you decide you want that bit of land over there or mm. that, those people's stuff over there, you, you go in and you just take it. Uh, just war theory tries to propose uh, this idea that from a Christian ethic perspective, um, we have to go through a process of saying, when might violence and war be justified? So, for example, in the case of trying to stop, um, what do we do as if you are someone who tries to follow Jesus when you are confronted with Hitler? Right? Uh, do you turn the other cheek? Um, you know? And that, that's where the rubber hits the road on this stuff. So just war theory says that, well, through a certain process of discussion and conversation and putting it to, the, to certain standard levels of test, at what point can we justify saying it is now a reasonable course of action to go to war? The preference is always not to, generally speaking, but at what point does the scale tip over and we say, look, we actually have to in this particular situation, we, we have to go to war. So that's a, that's a very broad generalisation of just war theory. Does that make sense? Great. Um, so I guess the, 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 the question that then arises with the Jesus story is, well, 
Um, Jesus doesn't seem to embody a just war theory particularly. Um, so what do we do with that and how do we respond to that and what are we, and what are we saying? Are we saying, yes, be doormats for Jesus? Um, I think the first thing maybe to say is that the context is – it's really important to pay attention to the context. So in the first century you're living – if you're a citizen in the midst of the Roman Empire, you are – there are no ways – there are no um, – You can't just through democratic means decide to have your voice in society, right? So you can't just go, well, look, um, I'm going to vote Caesar out. That's what I'm going to do at the polls. I'm going to vote him out. Uh, you can't do that because it's it's not the way the system works. Uh, so you've got to pay attention to the way that whole context shapes the Jesus story in particular. Perhaps it's a very long, winding way of trying to avoid answering the question directly, isn't it? <laughs> um, am I doing well at that? Um Walter Wink suggests that Jesus offers, uh, in many cases, a third way. Um, and so to be a pacifist is n- or to be nonviolent is not to simply accept what is taking place. It's not the same as just accepting what's taking place. Uh, so uh, something like turn the other cheek, while well, if you were um, usually their experience was being hit by those of higher status, perhaps Roman soldiers and things like that, who would strike the people to, to keep them in line, and they would always strike with the back of their right hand because that was what you did to someone who was of lower status. You strike them with the back of your right hand. Um, and if you had been struck in that way and you turn the other cheek, you're essentially then challenging the person to strike them uh, with your open hand, which would be to treat you as an equal. Uh, and so even in that act of turning the other cheek, there is a challenging of the system and the way in which it works that doesn't take up violence against but does confront the system and name it and expose it for what it is. Um, so there is, a, there, is, there is an argument that Jesus proposes a third way, but I think even then we are still confronted with the realities of life, right? So if someone broke into your home, uh, there's not a lot of time to think about a third way. <laughs> Hang on, let me think. come up with a really clever Jesus-type solution to this problem. Uh, <laughs> by the time you've processed that, uh, things have already gone sour. Um, and so I think we are confronted with the realities of life as it, as it actually is. And um, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, was a pacifist uh, because of the gospel. And yet even he got to a point where he was like, I think we've got to take Hitler down because he was like, it might not even be the right, the ideal right thing to do, but it has to be done because this is, this is now escalated and this is way out of control. And so he eventually get a, got arrested for trying to being caught in a plot to assassinate Hitler um, as a pacifist. Not, not very Christian. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I think we continue to sit in this place of tension and we wrestle with this. I think what the story of Jesus is exposing is that if we think simply engaging in violence is going to solve the problem once and for all, that if we would just use a bit more of it, we would fix the problem. What we find in reality is that it it seems to just continue the spiral of violence and make it worse. And so we've got to look at that and let that impact the way in which we make our decisions in the world in which we live. Uh, so there's probably more we could say about that. But Does anyone have a follow-up question to mm. that that they think is appropriate to ask? Yeah. Yes. 
Wondering, um, with the sense that Jesus was pacifist, I, I like the idea of the third way, um, and I'm thinking about what was going on for Jesus when he overturned the tables in the temple. Like I'm thinking it wasn't just like, excuse me, but let's not do this and gentle tipping. It, it comes across as quite a powerful mm-hmm. physical act, and I'm just wondering how he makes sense of that. Um, yeah, and also, I mean, similarly in his sermon on the mount, the you know, if you if a person strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also, and and then if the Roman soldier asks you to go one mile, which they legally could, mm. go another, yeah. it's like in your face in a way, mm-hmm. um, you know, saying, hey, I will, I'm going to gladly take this on. You're not going to oppress me. So it's a statement about equality again, but I'm just wondering how we make sense of. The temple one. Well, I think it's important to note, from my perspective anyway, that uh, there's, the violence is not directed towards people in the temple cleansing. So it doesn't say that he goes in and strikes a bunch of people and and then you know and and whips them as such. He drives them out of the temple. There's this social. It's a demonstration of it's a it's a protest against the corruption of the temple system, uh, which is certainly very provocative. In fact, it's that. Many scholars would suggest that's like the tipping point for right. That's that's like the tipping point over which they've got to kill this guy because uh, he goes right to the heart of things and, and goes in and intentionally and um, confrontationally disrupts that whole system. Uh, there's no indication that that violence, though, is towards people. How, how, I'm not sure that we could say that. Like how, how, if, if they're driven out, yes. they would have felt threatened. Perhaps. Yeah, sure, okay. Otherwise they would have had negotiated and said, hey, we've got a right to be here, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, yeah. you know, so I'd imagine if there was a powerful sense of some physical something. I mean, one of the things that I've, when I've, when I've read that text, there is the idea that Jesus is not, in one sense, formally venting um, violent opposition towards people, but more so towards the systems and structures that have, they have set up that is also, by default, limiting other humans' ability to express their faith or express their passion for God. So one of the things that I see in that passage is that Jesus is doing what Paul later reflects when he says, um, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Now, of course, we have taken that a step further to talk about, you know, there is some kind of spiritual uh, levels of demonic activity going on in the atmosphere. And while that is has been a, a, a long-held interpretation by many, one of the a lot of scholars believe that the original idea behind what Paul is addressing is the systems and structures and uh, political controlling forces that are in place um, and that are holding people's lives in in slavery to those systems. And when I look at that passage, I go, is Jesus actually being violent towards people? Is was he making a statement about the systems and the corruption that is that is reinforcing that kind of control? So yeah, I mean, I, I I see it as a as a as an aggressive response, and I'm and I'm sure there might have been a few people that would go, well, if you you had a stall in the Edge Kingsland 
um, fraft and someone came in and threw your table over because you're selling stuff in the house of the Lord, you, you might be slightly aghast and thrown back, all right? Um, unfortunately, we weren't there, but we're asked to interpret that in the light of what we think it means for our lives today. And I, I think Jesus is making a statement and, and giving us opportunity to suggest that resisting the principalities and powers might be one of the ways in which we express our, ourselves, you know, when faced with that kind of stuff, you know. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's just my thought, you know. coming. I'm actually one. I, I looked at that question, and I wonder if we got away from it a little bit because it's um, you actually we need to consider um, how do we relate to the idea of worshiping somebody who is a non-violent revolutionary executed yeah. by the state. I think we need to remember um, that Pilate, the representative of the state. Did everything he, not everything he could, I suppose, maybe his wife put a bit more pressure on him, but um, he did a lot to try and get out of executing Jesus. And he wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't executed because he was an affront to Rome, not at that stage anyway. He was executed because he upset the Jewish religious system. And even, even the whole issue of um, turn the other cheek and so on, it wasn't his pacifism. I don't think that they – you remember the, the, the accusations made against Jesus were about his attitude towards the Sabbath and towards the Jewish laws and so on. And I don't think they were offended by turn the other cheek. You know, I'm just thinking that these are, two, these are different issues. And, um, you know, I, I think we need to consider that, uh, you know, to what extent the, the, the Romans actually wanted him dead. It wasn't the Romans, it was the Jews which I know sounds very anti-Semitic and not very cool, <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, maybe you want to talk about Gaza. Anyway, that's another issue. No, no, no. That would uh, really get away from the question, wouldn't it? So, um, <laughs> look, I think, there's, I think there's no doubt that, um, yeah. that Jesus upset religious authorities and powers, for sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder whether it's just because we're so used to reading it this way that we don't that we think turn the other cheek didn't defend them, but my feeling is it probably did. Um, it sounds nice to us, but if you're the people awaiting a, a, a Messiah who's going to come and liberate you and 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 you're going to fight your way out of it, turn the other cheek actually is offensive to some degree in that context. Um, so I. I I wonder whether that's all that's equally offensive as, as what he did the Sabbath. Certainly the Jewish people or the Jewish the Jewish people, that's a that's a wild statement. Uh, certain Jewish religious uh, leaders at that time, uh, at the particular point in time when Jesus is arrested and executed, push for that to happen, absolutely. Um, Pilate in particular is portrayed as a as a as a in a more ambiguous light, um, but it is the machineries of the empire who do um, ultimately carry out the execution of Jesus Christ. And all of the statements that his followers make after Jesus' life around the titles that they give him are themselves a, uh, you know, son of God and Lord and Saviour. These are, these are titles meant for Caesar. So I, th- I, think, I think it's fair to say there is both going on here, but that at different times in the story, different um there is there is different levels of weight coming from those different 
groups. That would be my perspective on it. But yeah. Um, that seems to be implicit from Jesus and some of the Gospels um, in the meta sense when we're talking about hell. So um, Jesus, through the authors and the Gospels and, and Matthew and Luke, uh, talks about hell quite a, quite implicitly and explicitly at times, sometimes in terms of eternal conscious torment, which is pretty violent, sometimes in annihilation, also pretty violent. Um, some of the other writers in the New Testament, John and Revelation and Sheeps and Goats and... Uh, the goats getting annihilated. Um, what do you do with that? I feel sorry for the goats. <laughs> yeah, look, that's a good. That's a big question, isn't it? Uh, and this, uh, I think, it's a really important question because I think what we, what perhaps is a, a quite a popular approach these days, is to say, God is love, Jesus loves you, I love you. Here's the good news: God is amazing, wants the best for your life. Amen, but if you don't accept him, you'll burn forever and he'll, he'll torture you forever and ever. Amen. We just, that's, but we, we don't tend to say that as much because it's not as, um doesn't go down at the royal wedding in the same way. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, there, was a, there was a tour that went around New Zealand, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, you know, where many people sort of came to, came to faith through this, this uh, exploration of these ideas. Uh, and I think we have to actually bring that to the surface and actually have that conversation because to just tack it on the end but never talk about it but believe it is actually ultimately creating a problem for the rest of the story. And then when someone comes along and says it out loud on their Instagram account, um, also, you know, in, in the social media world, all of a sudden Christians feel exposed because what many Christians really actually think is suddenly out in the public square and, 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 and not being experienced as good news by people. So yeah, uh, great question. Still avoiding answering, aren't I? Um, and I think, again, the, the, the response to this has to be an issue of context, which is to say that I think we read the language of Jesus very much in, uh, through the filter of a church tradition which has layered meaning into the words of Jesus that um, that I don't think accurately portrays what it was that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is using first century Jewish prophetic language and, and imagery, um, but I don't think he's personally talking about um, places of eternal punishment when he's using that language. Now that would take a, a while to unpack and actually at formation in uh, the next series, after this one finishes, we've got a whole night on hell and then a whole night on heaven uh, where we unpack that more. But perhaps for now I can just say I don't think that's what's actually going on in those texts. Yeah. Um, and I just think they've been read poorly by the church, especially since Dante, whose um, imagery around hell has shaped the church's imagination um, in pretty unhealthy mm. and unhelpful ways. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Oh, boy. <laughs> we could really keep going, couldn't we? Um, I, what, kind of where I'm currently sitting is leaning quite strongly to a, to a doormat situation. 
<laughs> in my logic. Because I think this is a religion I've chosen, a crucified Lord, a crucified God. This is, this is the path I've picked and, and uh, one of ultimate forgiveness, one of love. Love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle. All, all those incredible, beautiful texts that St. Paul talks about that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's so much in there about posture and way of being if we're talking about, you know, how do, how do we outwork this? And currently in my logic, I'm standing on the precipice of just being like, oh, well, I guess, because then, you know, you've got texts where it says if, if someone comes to rob you and take your cloak, then offer them something else as well. I think your, your, your shoes or something, you know. It's this, the, the intent is give, like that's the third way, that's the result. Uh, sorry, that's, that's the third way. If we're talking about doormatism, if that's such a thing. My logic is leaning towards the, oh, well, yep, turn the other cheek, give them your shoes, not just your jacket. Uh, if they're, you know, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. You know, all these things that in my logic, and I'm not courageous enough to really live this out to the extent that my logic is running this. But that's kind of where I'm sitting at the moment. And that's, that in some way, that's kind of what I'm aspiring to. I hope to be the kind of human being that can live out the kind of things that, to pick up the tucky that Christ is throwing down. Like, that's where I'm at at the moment. Uh, basically, I'm kind of, it's a, it's a little cry for, give me some balance. <laughs> Help me not to go so far gone. What's What's the... The counter to that extreme, because that is an extreme. I mean, for me, one of the things that has been has helped me is looking at this from a multi-layered perspective. That my 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 Greg as a person, how I respond as a person, Greg as a parent. Uh, how do I respond in the light of my role as a parent, uh, Greg as a leader? in their responsibility for the greater for the greater group. In each of those situations, I have to process um, how I resist or how I give in or how I understand violence that is afforded towards me, you know, or towards those that uh, the particular roles that I find myself in as a human being, you know. Um, uh, if someone is threatening the life of a defenceless child that I'm the parent of, it would it would be natural for any of us to resist that violence done against our child by stepping in and taking the violence ourselves on behalf of the one that we love. Um, so it's it's not so much a doormat. It's a willingness to give your life in, in confrontation to that which you, you, you don't believe in. It looks like doormat, but I think it's a willing choice. Jesus chose to go to the cross, it says. He made a willing choice to lay down his life for the, for the cause, so to speak. So I think Jesus resisted all the way. 
I don't think he was a doormat. I think he resisted all the way, to, even to the point where he said, Father, if you know, if, if, if you can, take this cup from me, his internal fortitude and resistance, and yet not my will but yours be done. You know, and I think, I, I think this is a really big conversation. It has multiple layers because we all work in different spheres. If you were the leader of a country, so there's me as an individual, me as a parent, me as a leader, me as an international leader, me as a president. How do I respond in each of those situations? And I, I hear what you're saying by way as a doormat. Like, for instance, as a parent and a child who's being bullied, how do you help that child resist the empire, resist that which that child needs to resist, but in a way that befits you helping courage to rise in that child and not to, to resort to the same kind of brutal response, you know, stroke for stroke, you know. And so it's, while it looks like being a doormat, it doesn't feel like that to me because there's resistance going on inside of me. And I think that's why you read writers who say, uh, submit yourself to God, but resist the devil. And the devil in this case is that which is in opposition to the spirit of God that's working in me. So, you know, that's a really long answer to say, I can understand the doormat thing, but I think you've got to, You've got to look at all the different. There's multiple contexts and layers to that. So, um, and you're a husband, um, and you will find yourself in situations where your partner or your spouse is threatened, and you will find yourself having to learn to resist in a way that might be different for yourself. You know, on that other person's behalf. When we see, when, or when we're, we're exposed to a certain type of violence, that we naturally would think that that's how we would respond back to that violence. So I'm thinking about the story where um, the woman was brought to Jesus who was being accused of adultery. And she was being exposed to tremendous violence. She was about to die for her crime. And Jesus didn't, didn't race in there and push the guys off. Or, you know, he just reached down and wrote in the sand, exposing their hearts. So I think that perhaps our, the response that I think about when it comes to violence, there are non-aggressive ways or non-physical ways to deal with violence that could just be come out of pure wisdom. You know, even the things that we might say that might disarm somebody or disarm violence. So there's lots and lots of mm. our natural responses tit for tat, but I think Jesus was saying, you, I don't think Jesus was saying, you can't respond. I think he was saying, respond well. Be wise about your response because that could disarm the violence that's happening around perhaps. And I think um, like love of, love of enemies sits right at the heart of this, right? So I think um, there's no set response in it, that we must then just apply to every situation which we encounter. But love of enemies sits at the heart of the, the Christian story. Um, you know, I, I remember one time someone talking about how, you know, um, how if someone wants to do something, you know, like to, to be violent against their child, they would become pretty angry and active against that aggressor. Um, 
but I guess it's it's then the reminder to step back and say, well, if we were to look from a, a divine perspective, um, what if you were to have two children and one was aggressive against the other? Um, then, now I don't have children, so if my metaphor doesn't work at all for you, then you can blame me for not this not being my lived experience. But um, if you were to have one child aggressive against another, you actually love both children, so then how does that shape the way that you respond in this particular situation? That doesn't mean you won't intervene or act or respond, but your response will be shaped by love um, rather than demonising one. And I think... What's kind of being exposed here from my perspective in the Jesus story is our tendency to demonise our enemy and opponent, which means we can then justify anything we do to them. So Jesus instead says, no, love them, and then let the response come out of that. That doesn't mean there won't be necessarily some kind of response, but the response will come out of a place of having been asked to see the fact that even this person, even this Roman soldier crucifying Jesus, even this ISIS fighter, even this um, school shooter, if we were to use American, you know, recent events, well, all the time, um, even they are, are loved by God and we are asked to love them. That doesn't mean that you then just become a doormat, I don't think, but whatever you do comes out of that place of love of love of other and love of enemy. And I think that's, for me, that's the kind of the, the starting point for every response and every action. Katarina, yes. Um, um, all evening, I, when I listened to you, I remembered back. I actually, I lived in South Africa at the end of the apartheid struggle and was involved in reconciliation work and pretty much affected by the civil war during that time, and I remember um, I was affiliated to church and some Christian groups and these eternal discussions around liberation theology. Do you, do you take up arms in the name of God and to, to just really fight for the oppressed or do you not, you know, are you that doormat and, and then nothing will change and... Um, and I don't think there ever was really a, a fix and ever a firm answer, which was extremely frustrating. And now with sort of years of distance from that experience, I and tonight I'm thinking, Jesus is very much always talks about relationship and staying in relationship and and, and, and continuing with a dialogue and it's not a sort of a, it's not the black and white answer and the, that's it, you know, that's it for the, for the final word from Jesus and then, then, then we can all go home and go to bed and, you know. Um, it's that peace beyond all understanding and our misunderstandings and the invitation, I think, of Jesus on the cross is to remain in dialogue with one another because life on earth is just complex. I think uh, maybe we should tie up, shouldn't we? Um, yeah, have Kai. Um, I'll finish with a thought, and then we'll have Kai, because uh, I always got to finish with a thought. But thank you. Yeah, I think that's really 
profound, and this is a, not an easy conversation in many respects. I think whatever we do, and whenever we start talking about this, and even when I start talking about Hitler, for example, always the best example in an ethics class, um, we have to reconcile with the fact that it was the church and its ideology and its pursuit of power and alignment with empire that helped give Hitler the power that he had in Germany, right? So we have before we maybe before we even ask the question, what would have been the right response? You've got to start with that as being a fundamental problem. And I think even with think about violence, um, even in the home and the way in which Christian patriarchy has created environments in which um, violence in the home has then become um, something that essentially flourishes within a structure that the Christian church has created. That's a great place to finish, eh? What a hopeful note. Um, all that to say, I think, you know, these, these, these things are never just, um, these are not easy fixes. But what Jesus does is raise them to the surface. And we're really good at burying them all down and just saying, no, we're okay, God's on our side, it's all right. Uh, uh, we've got it sorted. And what I think Jesus' story does is constantly raise these things to the surface and say, hey, what does it look like to live a life a different way? What does it look like to love the other? What does it look like to love the person who's not like you? What does it look like to love even your enemy? And then let's have a conversation from there. And that's going to be an ongoing conversation in the human experience. But Jesus won't let us let that conversation go. The conversation keeps being brought back to us because we come and gather once again around a cross. Yeah? Awesome. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to talk about um, does Jesus die for our sins? So uh, that's going to be fun. All right? Love it.